You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Episode 73, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome to The Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thank you for joining me as we explore the U.S. medical system in a fun and informative format through expert analysis. Today's expert is Dr. Aaron Cariotti. He has written extensively and has had many public debates on physician-assisted suicide. As you might be aware, in 1997, the state of Oregon legalized physician-assisted suicide and has ushered in a bit of a wave in the United States as a number of other states, most recently California, just a few years ago. I think you'll find the discussion on physician-assisted suicide to be interesting on a few levels. For one thing, you don't have to be a specialist as a physician to follow the conversation. Because although there's some technical knowledge in how to kill someone, certainly it's not specific to medical training. Uh, Also, it's more of an ethical and political discussion in what the proper role is of the law, of physicians, and of patients and family members in the act of suicide. We go into how suicide is actually a social phenomenon, one that tends to aggregate. I know there are a lot of moral panics that are begun uh, with the concern about copycat crimes and things like that, but I think it's certainly with suicide, it's well documented that there is a social effect and the acceptance of it changes the rate of suicide. And most of us, I would presume, feel very concerned if someone in our family were to commit suicide I know we oftentimes look at the physician-assisted suicide in the lens of someone who is on their deathbed, or for whatever reason they're just unable to commit the final act. But most people who are given the pills that are for death are actually able-bodied in the sense that they probably could find other means of committing suicide. And so we'll get into exactly what the implications are of having physicians involved and what the society's legal system how that changes the perceptions from those in the society and what it changes as far as end-of-life discussions that physicians might have that are totally unrelated to suicide. But these are discussions we have all the time in the ICUs and the hospitals around the country. There are a number of pieces that Dr. Cariotti has written. Those will be linked at the show notes at theparadox.com slash 073. There's also a link to a YouTube debate he had with a law professor where they debated physician-assisted suicide when it was still up for debate in the state of California. As always, I'd like to thank you for sharing the show as the show's growth is contributed entirely to you, to the ideas you send me, and also by sharing it with your friends and colleagues and family members. So please, if you can think of someone else who might enjoy the show, send along a link to them, a show that you like. Since I took a week off for Thanksgiving, hopefully you had a nice break. I did. We're back at it. And it's a little bit longer discussion because it's just really fascinating. I just couldn't stop talking to Dr. Cariotti about this subject. So without further ado... Dr. Aaron Coriati, and the discussion on is physician-assisted suicide good policy? Enjoy. Welcome. I'm delighted. I'm here with my new friend, Dr. Aaron Cariati. 
He's an associate professor of psychiatry and the director of medical ethics at UC Irvine Medical School in Southern California. And today we're going to talk about something that I haven't ta- addressed yet in the show. Uh, and I actually don't address ethics too often, but when I have the opportunity to speak to someone who is an authority on it, I like to try and snatch him up. So Dr. Carity, thank you so much for joining me on Paradox. Thanks. It's great to be with you, Eric. Well, we're going to talk about, I first came across you in one of your pieces that you wrote in New Atlantis uh, this summer on physician suicide, assisted suicide. And then you also sent me a couple of links and those will be added in the show notes at uh, ones from the Washington Post, uh, the dangerously contagious effect of assisted suicide laws. And then uh, one piece from First Things uh, called the Apostolate of Death. But why don't you go into briefly the, what prompted you to get involved in I guess, researching or at least thinking more about physician-assisted suicide. Sure. So I wear two hats professionally. One is the medical ethics hat where I do ethics consultations in our hospital at UCI. And of course, many of the cases that we deal with have to do with complex end-of-life issues, difficult decisions that patients and families or the treatment teams need to make at the end of life. And so from that work, I have a keen interest in end-of-life care, uh, palliative care, and you know, providing the best care possible for our patients in that very last stage of life. But the other hat that I wear is I'm a psychiatrist, and so about half my time is spent teaching and uh, supervising residents and students and, and seeing my own patients in, uh, in psychiatry. And within psychiatry, I have a particular interest in the issue of suicide. I lost a close friend of mine to suicide when I was an intern in medical school. And I think that had a deep influence on me and uh, probably impacted my choice of profession, seeing, seeing this friend of mine deal with bipolar disorder and, uh, and then losing him to, yeah. to suicide. And what I noticed when the debates on assisted suicide started resurfacing, uh, maybe about eight or 10 years ago, again, in the United States, was there was remarkably little attention that was being paid in these debates to what we know about suicide itself, that patients who were requesting help from a physician to deliberately end their life uh, were treated almost as though their state of mind and their motivations were entirely different from other people who wanted to end their life. And right. Based on what I had seen in terms of the patients that I've treated clinically, both as a psychiatrist and as someone who sees a lot of patients at the end of life doing ethics consultations, uh, this didn't make a lot of sense to me. It it struck me that uh, while people with a terminal illness certainly have aspects of their situation that are going to be obviously unique to them, in many ways, the things that, that were motivating these requests were the same things that were motivating patients in the mental health realm that we were hospitalizing for suicidal ideation or after a suicide attempt. Uh, so we had one cohort of patients that I was dealing with that were where we were intervening to try to protect them from suicide and get them through an acute crisis. And then we had another group of patients that we, people were proposing not only should we not intervene and try to prevent them from taking their life, but in fact, we should actively assist them. We should ask physicians to actively assist them in taking their own life. And I just, I just couldn't square that up. Right. Uh, and so I think that that was the initial impulse for thinking through these issues, trying to think through these issues, both as a medical ethicist and as a psychiatrist. And then when the debate surfaced in California around uh, 2014, 2015, with the, the death of a widely publicized case of, of Brittany Menard, a young woman from Southern California, who moved from California to Oregon in order to avail herself of their assisted suicide law, that sort of sparked the debate again here in California. And... Uh, and then for me, it was, you know, being in the wrong place at the wrong time, <laughs> Eric. I, you know, I published an op-ed and, you know, that led to speaking at the California Medical Association on, on the issue. And that led to some media stuff. And that led to more writing and more research. And 
so really, my my interest in this issue really intensified in around 2014, 2015, when it became a critical issue that was hotly debated in, in California, the state where I practice. It is an interesting dichotomy, isn't it? That we have, uh, like you said, on the one hand, we have people who are always advocating for more mental health resources so that people who are in the midst of depression, who have suicidal thoughts, we do everything we can. We suicide hotlines, everything we can to try and help these people. And yet we have, like you said, it's the, then we have the exact opposite impulse in certain cases. And it seems, and it is very hard to figure out what we're really, what we're really trying to accomplish from a public health standpoint. Can you, Go yeah, into oh, go ahead. One of the yeah, one of the things that I worry about from a public health standpoint, I'm glad you brought that up, is if we accept that for this cohort of patients, however we're going to define them, it's okay for physicians not only not to intervene to protect them, but to assist them in taking their own lives. I I worry that that is going to erode our efforts at suicide prevention in other realms. And, and one of the reasons for that, that I've seen as I've debated this issue publicly and really gotten down into the weeds on the arguments on both sides of the issue, is that if you look at arguments that are made by proponents of assisted suicide, uh, first of all, they can be, their power. there are some power, powerful arguments mm-hmm. that definitely, I think, tap into our uh, compassion for people that are suffering and our desire to, to eliminate suffering. But if you look at the arguments, they basically boil down to two. <clears throat> the first one is the argument from pain and suffering. So this person with a terminal illness who's going to die anyway is maybe suffering in, in ways that medicine can't alleviate. If not physically, then existentially or emotionally or, or mentally um, with death anxiety or with, you know, all kinds of other um, anguishing things that can happen to a person with a terminal illness. And if, if this is the only or the best or the most expedient way to end their suffering, uh, and this is what they want, why shouldn't we give it to them? So that's sort of the, the first argument that proponents make. And again, it's, it's, it's a powerful argument. Sure. I don't find it convincing and compelling, but I have to admit it's powerful. And the second argument that I think is very appealing to us, especially as Americans, you know, with our our tradition of sort of um, rugged individualism, is the argument from personal autonomy. Right. So if a person knows what they're asking for, and this is not someone who has late stage dementia and doesn't know what's going on, uh, they're making the request. It's fully informed. They know what it's what it entails. They know what their other options are. Why shouldn't we respect their autonomy and, and give them what they want? Okay, so again, another argument that very much appeals to, uh, I think, traditions of, of thought, especially for, uh, for Americans and, and people in, in modern Western societies where autonomy has become a really preeminent value. But the problem with these arguments, as I see them, is that, is that they do too much work, right? So... So we make these arguments from pain and suffering and from autonomy and choice. And then we propose laws that try to put narrow restrictions around assisted suicide. I think because that makes us feel better about it, right? So mm-hmm. so the assisted suicide laws will say things like, well, you've got to have a terminal illness where you only have six months left to live. And, and you've got um, to have you know full decision-making capacity. You can't put this in an advanced directive ahead of time. And you've got to be over the age of 18 and, you know, this, that, and the other thing. But the problem with those restrictions is if you look at the arguments that justified them in the first place, those restric- restrictions really make no sense. They're, they're arbitrary, right? So, so if, the, if the argument is based on pain and suffering, well, um, someone can come along and say, look, if society allows assisted suicide for someone with six months or less to live, why wouldn't they allow it for me? We already see these arguments being made in states where assisted suicide is legalized. So people with ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, that have a slow, gradual decline, um, want perhaps to request assisted suicide earlier in the process 
um, so that they can be sure they still have motor control to self-administer the medication. So, so that six-month rule begins to look sort of arbitrary, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or if we base this on pain and suffering, then, then someone with a, a mental health condition that's causing deep anguish uh, can can look at this and say, look, on, on, on equal protection grounds, I should have the right to do this too because I'm suffering just as much as this other person. Uh, maybe my suffering is worse. Maybe my physical pain condition is worse. And furthermore, they're going to be gone in a few months, but I'm going to have to endure my suffering for years and years and years, right? So yeah. if they should get it, why shouldn't I? And so I, I, w- w- people talk about this slippery slope, and, and sometimes I think people mistakenly think, well, slippery slope arguments aren't valid. Because basically what they're saying is that this is going to be difficult to implement or difficult to enforce these rules on, on a kind of practical level. And, and that's maybe one worry. But, but I worry about what I like to call the logical slippery slope. And, and that's what, basically what I just described. That once, we, once the camel's nose gets inside the tent and we say, it's, it's, you know, we cross that Rubicon, we say it's permissible for physicians to help patients take their lives. Um, then I think uh, on the basis of the arguments that we've already accepted to justify that, we're going to see a logical progression to expanding the criteria of people that would qualify. And, and if, you look at, if you look at countries that have been doing this longer than we have, if you look at Belgium, if you look at the Netherlands, you see that's exactly how things play out when this social experiment continues as it has in, in those places. What so specifically about Belgium and the Netherlands? Um, I know, I feel like I read recently, a year or so, that they started euthanasia for children, or at least that's right. Um, it, it, was that a? Do you think that's a natural extension of the physician-assisted suicide? Uh, that that at some point suicide or planned death, I guess you'd call it, <laughs> uh, is well, sort of I, more acceptable. That you just it, it just becomes more acceptable to have other things that are okay. I do because, I mean, try to think of another situation in medicine in which we had a novel intervention. I, I'm not going to call assisted suicide a treatment because I, I don't think it's a treatment. No. Uh, treatments heal people and assisted suicide doesn't do that. But, but a novel intervention that we offered to adults that did what it was supposed to do for adults that we would not offer to children in the same circumstances, right? Yeah. knowing that it would have the same effect on children. I mean, I just, I, I can't think of another example of that. So again, it, the, the restricting this to adults seems sort of arbitrary. Um, if we believe that this is a good or a benefit that we would offer to people at the end of life, why would we keep a good or a benefit or an intervention that did what we intended to do why would we keep that from children that are suffering in the same way it, it doesn't seem to it doesn't seem to make sense so i think that is a kind of logical progression i i think it's i think it's not good that that happened but if you accept those premises it's hard to resist the momentum of where they're going to take you uh, also in belgium and the netherlands we've seen the extension to people with mental illness, but who do not have a terminal illness, people with refractory depression or personality disorders that have proven very difficult to treat. There's been a number of very well-documented, well-publicized cases uh, in that realm. And in fact, uh, people people in, in older age brackets in those cu- countries can now make the, re- the request just based on the fact that they're tired of living or the fact that their spouse with a terminal illness is is going to be doing this and they they want to die together they don't want to outlive their spouse again there's been a few cases um in uh, some of these countries of of married couples uh doing paired assisted suicide where one of them was was terminally ill but the other one was not and again i i think i think what we see in that social experiment that's been conducted in those countries is this is where things will logically take you once you once you accept the basic premise that this is permissible yeah i think and i think to 
to further po- point out the the point you made about children, there are all kinds of off-label uses we use for medications that we use for children that are not have never been tested in kids, but we see that the you know they provide they ease suffering or treat pain, like using morphine, for instance, for kids. It's That's actually right. never been tested in children, and and you'd be a you know a monster not to use them for for kids. And so, like as you said, if you have a treatment that works, why would it not naturally extend to others? I've always found it interesting the end of life. Just the comment that something's end of life, and the same argument is used for the use of healthcare resources, for instance. Like, well, the end of care, the end of life care is you know half the amount of healthcare you spend in your life you spend in the last six months of your life. Of course, the problem yeah. always is you never really know what the last six months of your life is. I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's and, right. and 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 right. how many people have you met in your life who have told you, oh, "I was told I had six months to live," or "I was told that this is a terminal disease," "I had you know whatever." And they far outlive, and sometimes they mm-hmm. beat whatever it was. And so, our 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 scientific knowledge of how long someone is going to live is very limited. It's not as nearly as precise or uh, or right. accurate as we think it is. We're we're very good at prognosticating death when it gets to the point where it's hours to days away. We're pretty good when it's weeks away. Um, when we get to the six month realm which is what the laws are premised on in the United States, at least, our prognostication of death is very, very hazy. And there's actually an interesting, if you look at some of the data from Oregon that has been doing this since 1997, longer than any other state, uh, many of the, roughly half of the people that get a prescription for the assisted suicide pills uh, don't take them. They either change their mind and choose not to take them after all, or maybe they die of, of natural causes before they take them. And uh, it, it's hard to follow all of those folks, but there have been a few studies that uh, that have followed some of the folks that have gotten the prescription and not taken them. Uh, and it's clear that a fairly substantial proportion of them live another year or two. Mm-hmm. Um, and so again, these were people that under the law were deemed to have six months or less to live and clearly outlive that prognosis and and thank goodness they chose not to take the uh, the deadly drug when they still had a couple of years of 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 life ahead of them sure well i mean you see this at hospice all the time right people sure. they have a there you can't go to hospice unless you have a terminal disease and of course they're you know still there after 9 months or a year perhaps uh, because maybe that's the care they really needed <laughs> sometimes not as a um I mean, who knows? Uh, because our ability to predict is so poor. I actually have a yeah, friend who's right. a physician, uh, and he, the first thing he tells the patient is that he said, "I will, you will die. <laughs> I will not prevent you from dying." So, you know, so he's pointing out that you know we can't prevent you from from death because everyone it, life is a terminal disease in many ways, right? right? We can't we can never predict that. <laughs> the human mortality rate continues to hold steady at one hundred percent. Right. <laughs> yes. Despite all the miracles of of modern medicine. And so, and that's, that's a really important, important point, Eric, when we're talking about assisted suicide, that, that, you know, my opposition to assisted suicide does not mean that I subscribe to a kind of, of vitalism or, uh, you know, continuing to sustain or maintain life, uh, medically at all costs. Uh, I, I think actually those two things might, might assisted suicide and, and, extending life medically at all costs might be sort of paradoxically two sides of the same coin because both of them involve a kind of denial of death, right? A a kind of notion that that we can completely control the timing and circumstances of our own death that that lacks the kind of humble acceptance that, um, you know, death is the one event in our life that I think most fully and most finally reminds us of our lack of complete mastery and control. You know, we all want to be the author of the story of our life, but but still, there are going to be things that happen to us that we didn't choose uh, autonomously. And and I think death is the sort of paradigmatic example of that. And and we end up giving bad medical care when we go off the rails in in one of those two directions, either intentionally as physicians trying to foreshorten life, uh, or uh, or kind of brutalizing people at the end of life by continuing medically futile interventions when they're no longer beneficial and and when they're just prolonging the dying process 
unnecessarily. And, and I think it's important for patients to know that, that medicine is, is committed to not killing patients deliberately, but is also committed uh, to making sure that patients are comfortable in their last days um, and, and not, not behaving as though death is the last enemy for medicine to conquer, which is just sort of futile and, you know, ultimately, you know, a, mm -hmm. a sort of folly and, and, and hubris on our part. Yeah, I think uh, it's, it's important to recognize as physicians that our goal is to cure disease. And when we cannot cure it, we, we ease suffering. But we, I don't think we really have the capacity to end suffering. I think that's not really in our, um, that's not really in our bag as far as that's right we, right. we try to we try to mitigate it to the degree mm -hmm. that we can but the proposal to 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 eliminate suffering by eliminating the one who suffers is is quite bizarre when you when you at least it's bizarre to me when you yeah. think about it um I, you know many people are from find that notion i think plausible or convincing um but it, it seems quite nonsensical to me well, I'd like to shift to focus a little bit because one of the things I found very interesting and, and I was not really, I was sort of aware because I've read, I think one of Malcolm Gladwell's books where it maybe it's tipping point where he talks about suicide on some island somewhere and it became sort of, I don't for lack of a better word, trendy, right? Yeah. Um, why don't you talk about the social phenomena of suicide and, uh, and I, I guess to start there and then maybe talk about how that's affected been affected by various, you know, the state laws and, and countries that have adopted sure. a different, you know, viewpoint sure. towards suicide. Sure. So uh, this this is one of the concerns that I expressed um, regarding assisted suicide, and that has to do with what we know about the social contagion effects of suicide. And this research goes back a hundred years uh, to the seminal work of Emil Durkheim, who's probably not familiar to, to a lot of clinicians, but he's sort of the founding father of modern sociology. And he wrote a book on suicide that looked at suicide rates around the world and, and noted this social contagion element. And, uh, and actually even further back uh, than that, historically, anecdotally, uh, the, 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 the phenomenon of social contagion with a well-publicized case of assisted suicide is called the Werther effect. And that comes from an 18th century novel by Goethe called The Sorrows of Young Werther. And the, the protagonist in the novel is thwarted in his romantic pursuits, and he ends up taking his life with a pistol. And this was a wildly popular novel in Germany and Italy when it was first published. And the authorities there noticed a rash of suicides, especially among young men, using the same means, shooting themselves, many of whom died with the book tucked under their arm, right? <laughs> and so again, that was, that was anecdotal a few hundred years ago, but social science has replicated that phenomenon many times over uh, to the point where now it's, it's, it's sufficiently well established that the World Health Organization and the CDC have both published guidelines for journalists and for media on how to report suicide so as to try to minimize the Werther effect. So that, that's one of the ways that, that suicide contagion spreads is through well-publicized cases, especially if they're presented in the media as um, romanticized or as a, a potential solution to difficult problems. Mm -hmm. But the other thing that happens, even when the case is not publicized in the media, is that suicide tends to spread person to person through social networks, uh, through uh, kinship networks, through friendship networks. The, the, the person who's done the most work on this is Nicholas Christakis at Yale, who's shown that many health-related behaviors, both positive and negative, anything from weight loss and smoking cessation to drug use, and including suicide, can uh, spread through social networks uh, up to three degrees of separation. And so if I were to take my life tomorrow, 
then not only my friends, but my friends, friends, friends would have an elevated risk of taking their lives over the next year. That's statistically significant. Now, the, the risk drops off, the effect drops off with each of those three degrees of separation. Okay. Um, so it has more impact on the people closer to me than on the people further, further away in that social network. But it's still statistically significant up to three degrees of separation. So, so what does this mean for assisted suicide? Well, we saw overall suicide rates in Oregon rise dramatically in the decade following the legalization of assisted suicide uh, in that state in 1997. There's data now published uh, by David Albert Jones, a colleague of mine in the UK, who looked at assisted suicide in, um, in three states after it was legalized in the US and tried to control for various confounding factors and time dependent factors. And, uh, and his study strongly suggested that the rise in overall suicide rates in those states, assisted and unassisted suicide rates in those states, uh, was impacted by the laws permitting assisted suicide. So, so there's, we have, I think we have a lot of reason to believe now that when we talk about assisted suicide, we're not just talking about an issue of individual autonomy. That's, you know, this is my decision. It's my body. It's my health care. If I decide to do this, it's not going to have an impact on anyone else. Well, I think we have some good reason to believe that that's not the case, right? That, that maybe proponents of the laws would like to think if we legalize assisted suicide for this very narrow population, let's say terminally ill individuals, um, that we, you know, we don't have to worry about the effect that it's going to have on the depressed 13-year-old young woman who you know, just got dumped by her boyfriend and um, is hospitalized with suicidal ideation and is struggling with an eating disorder or whatever. Um, but, but in fact, that, that young woman may, may take a look around and say, well, you know, I know my grandmother did this uh, a year or two ago when she got really sick and when she was suffering and, uh, you know, everyone around her seemed to think it was a good idea. In fact, they had a little going away party for her before, before she took the pills. Um, if it's okay for her, you know, why, why wouldn't it be okay for me? So, so I, th I think, Eric, another reason to worry is that, that laws themselves have a kind of pedagogical function, right? They, they not only uh, tell us what's going to happen if we do A, B, and C, but they also shape our perceptions of what is socially and morally acceptable, right? And so if a law says that this is socially and morally acceptable, I think I worry that that's a message that's going to be heard not just by people in some narrow category, like people that have a terminal illness, but that's a message that is going to resonate with other people who are vulnerable and, and at risk for suicide as well. And, and you'd argue that that's been borne out by actual results, right, from these the I, various states. That... You know, I think it has. And you know, I, admittedly, the data there is preliminary. You know, we've got a couple of studies. Uh, we've got, a, we've got a, a couple of studies on the Werther effect for specifically for assisted suicide. We need more data. And I think, you know, we should continue to monitor those uh, suicide rates and do some comparison studies in the states that have, that have legalized it. Um, but also recognizing that this has become a part of the national conversation as well. So the effect may actually extend beyond the state in which it's it's legalized. Um, so, yeah, there, there's always a need for more research on these complex questions of public health. And, and there's room for debate. But um, but my read of the literature is, you know, I think we have plenty of theoretical reason to believe that this could happen. And I think now we have some empirical reason to believe that it, in fact, has already started to happen. Well, and I, I certainly think when you look at other social phenomena, like you, you mentioned drug use or, say, smoking is a great example. I mean, and that's an interesting one in the sense that smoking is legal. I mean, I guess you could argue there are smoking bans in certain in public spaces in some states. I'm not sure how many. I know Michigan has one. But the rates of smoking in even the young have been declining for years now because of right. a public campaign and social stigma, I guess, towards right. smoking. Uh, and, and so 
it's funny because I do think with suicide, there are very few people who you'll meet who are in favor of suicide. I mean, they're they're concerned about people, their people in their family becoming suicidal. It's only yeah. like you've mentioned in this extremely narrow uh, portion, or it's almost a theoretical. If it's not, you know, not even someone I know who's okay with it. Um, yeah. But right, if someone is thinks it's okay for someone with a terminal disease or whatever it might be, um, then it it would seem like a reasonable solution to someone who may be battling with, like you said, depression. Or because I think it feels like people with depression and people who use suicide are people who have had a narrowing of their of their um, of of their mind, I guess, and sort of options right. for them, right? Yeah. And it's not so much, and so they just need to sort of realize the other ways out of whatever the problem is that they're facing. That's right. That's right. So typically the, the suicidal mind is very often, this is going to be associated with, with depression. Um, one of the effects of, of the depression is to narrow and constrict my scope of thinking so that it becomes harder to get a kind of breadth of, of vision that allows me to see alternative solutions to problems or to see hope for the future. People can endure a lot if they believe that, you know, it's possible that things could get better, or maybe there's a better treatment for my, my physical pain condition. Um, and so what happens is, it's not that people want to die or they want to em embrace death necessarily. It's that, it's that their thinking has become constricted and rigid. They're suffering in ways that they perceive are intolerable, or they're afraid that might happen in the future if they don't take action. And so they see a, they see suicide as a kind of escape hatch. Yeah. But the suicidal mind tends to be very ambivalent. Uh, the, the number one suicide spot in the world is the Golden Gate Bridge. About 2,000 people have died uh, from the bridge that we know of uh, since it was first built. Only a couple of dozen people have survived. It's almost impossible to survive uh, that jump. Uh, but a, a journalist tracked down the individuals that had survived that jump from the Golden Gate Bridge. He asked them a very interesting question. He said, what was going through your mind in the four seconds between when you jumped and when you hit the water? And every single one of them said the same thing. They said that they regretted having jumped. One guy said, I realized in an instant that all the problems in my life that I thought were unsolvable were actually solvable except for having just jumped. <laughs> so, you know, this is, we see this with suicidal individuals. If you get them through a crisis and you follow them out 10 years down the road, most of them either die of natural causes or are still alive. The vast majority of them, 80 to 90% in most studies, have not gone on to take their lives later. And also, if you, if you ask them, are you happy that people intervened even if it meant something like involuntary hospitalization, something that you didn't want at the time, a majority of them will say, yes, I'm glad that people intervened, even though I didn't want it at the time to get me through that crisis, right? Because I've found meaning or purpose or hope, found relief for my depression or whatever it was that they were suffering from. And so, you know, another worry of mine with this whole issue is, is the impact it's going to have on end of life care. Uh, because, you know, I think the right way to deal with a request for assisted suicide um, is is to begin with the assumption that this is a canary in the coal mine, that this is a this is a distress signal that the patient is sending out that suggests that, you know, something on the on the physical or psychological or, or social or spiritual level is not being attended to adequately. Um, you know, I'm in pain or I'm depressed and feeling hopeless, or I'm, I'm afraid, I'm afraid of becoming a burden on other people. Very mm -hmm. common reason people give for requesting assisted suicide. And, um, and I think the compassionate response to that is to, is to inquire, um, and to do, you know, a comprehensive assessment and then to offer the patient what we have available to treat their undertreated or untreated pain or their untreated or untreated, undertreated depression or to communicate to them that it's not a burden to care for you. It's, it's a privilege. And, uh, you know, we'll continue to care for you right up to the end. And this is what, it, this is what will be available to treat your pain or your air hunger. I talked to a person just 
um, just last week, um, a patient of mine with a terminal illness who's worried that she's going to suffocate to death with, with her lung cancer and that it's going to be distressing and painful. And, uh, you know, I needed to educate her on the palliative care option mm -hmm. and what we can do to make sure that um, a person with lung cancer doesn't die in having having respiratory distress. Um, this is, you know, bread and butter, butter, very basic palliative care. But it's it's not it's not something that lots of folks necessarily know about. Um, and I think what happens with assisted suicide is it becomes a cheaper and more expedient and more convenient solution to very complex, uh, difficult and expensive end of life situations. And, um, and I worry that some of those folks that could have been treated with better end of life care, maybe get shuttled too quickly down the assisted suicide pathway. Uh, you know, we know a lot of these requests are associated with, with depression, but if you look at the data in Oregon, only 3% now of individuals in Oregon who have received the prescription for the deadly drug for assisted suicide, only 3% of them were ever referred for psychiatric or psychological evaluation before they got the assisted suicide pills. So, so that number worries me a lot yeah. because I think there, there, there's a lot more folks in that cohort who probably needed a uh, a comprehensive psychiatric evaluation for depression or anxiety uh, or, or loneliness and probably probably didn't get it that th those issues may have been overlooked where they should have been uh, more adequately addressed yeah i mean there's no question i think you'd be very concerned that if people i mean there aren't many people who ask for suicide and there's obviously those psychiatric components to it it, it and it, it it concerns me the thought that well, I'm in Michigan, and certainly I remember when I was a kid, Dr. Jack Kevorkian was very much in the news. Yep, yep, And right. you know, Dr. Death, if people may recall, he was go he would had a traveling van, I guess he'd go to people's houses, and he'd administer their their IV cocktail and, and kill people, or, you know, sister suicide, I guess, however you want to phrase it. But um, there are definitely going to be people who are specialists in this sort of thing, mm -hmm. and uh, their, their business model is not one of healing and, and fixing people. Uh, right. They may have a questionnaire or something that I, I imagine they'll have some sort of, some sort of thing they, they'll, they'll have in place to say that they you know, adequately assess people and said that it, it's, you know, this is an appropriate treatment. Uh, but I mean, that would be, that'd be a huge concern of people going around killing people and, and that's yeah. their business model. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, it sounds, I mean, it sounds maybe alarmist and kind of macabre, but, but these folks are out there and they've, they've been enthusiastic about assisted suicide for a long time. And in the States where it's permitted, they're now sort of surfacing with clinics that are specializing in this. And I, I mentioned one of them, this is a fellow I debated a while back on, I think it was on NPR on the radio. Um, but in the New Atlantis piece, first taking no stand, I, I talk about a doctor up in the Bay Area who opened a clinic specifically for this for this purpose. Uh, you know, you can go in, pay your couple thousand bucks, get your two visits with a doctor that you haven't met before. You know, you haven't haven't been under his care. His care. He's he's not board certified or trained in palliative care or oncology or I think he's a, I think he's an, an emergency physician. So not necessarily someone uh, that that has a lot of clinical training or experience dealing with uh, chronic conditions that are uh, terminal or life-threatening. Life um, and, you know, th that, that model of practicing medicine worries me a lot. Uh, it, it worries me not only for the patients that are going to be going to these clinics and getting... Um, what is often going to be substandard care, but also just in terms of the public's trust in in the profession of medicine, um, you know, with folks like this operating out there, it's um, it, it, I think there's a danger of people becoming excessively wary of of even appropriate end of life care. Um, one of the things that that I do on the ethics committee often is have conversations with families that are 
making a loved one for an, uh, making a decision for an incapacitated loved one. Sure. And, um, and it's obviously it's going to be anguishing if that decision is to maybe transition to comfort care only and, and allow natural death. And it became more difficult to have these conversations after assisted suicide uh, was was legalized in California, uh, not because we do this in our in our hospital. We don't do it in the in the inpatient hospital at UCI, but just just knowing that it was out there in California made a lot of families very suspicious and nervous about having end of life care conversations because they were worried that that when we suggested something that was entirely medically and ethically appropriate, like you know continued treatment you know down this pathway is not yeah. going to be curative uh, let's let's thinking think about moving toward comfort care they they worried and i think understandably that what we were suggesting was the equivalent of of euthanasia or or assisted suicide so 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 this whole proposal to permit this has really muddied the waters and i think made it harder to maintain that important ethical distinction uh, that's been upheld by the U.S. Supreme Court between doctors killing, which is impermissible, and doctors allowing natural death when medicine has reached its limits, which, which of course, is, is permissible. Yeah. Uh, that, that's a central distinction to uh, you know, traditional Hippocratic medical ethics, and it's in danger of, of being abandoned. And that's, that's not good, not just for people who may avail themselves of assisted suicide and euthanasia. I think that's not good for end-of-life care in general because it just confuses and clouds the picture for everyone and makes people unduly suspicious of options that may be medically appropriate. Yeah, I'm I'm always bothered by the fact that physicians get roped into things that really we are out of our purview. <laughs> and I, you know... Uh, <laughs> Uh, one is medical marijuana, for instance. I mean, I th- right. whether you use marijuana or not, I don't know why a physician has to be involved in this decision. You know, I mean, like why it's not, we're not prescribing dosing or anything like that. It's like, yeah, go ahead and smoke yeah. it or not smoke it. It's sort of like the extent of it. Uh, and then it's, you know, why are we in this? And and I find the physician-assisted suicide so strange that why are physicians even involved in this? I mean, why don't you have, uh, you know, long haul trucker assisted suicide or, you know, electrician assisted suicide? Why do you have to have physicians? Because as you and I know, there are millions of ways to die. There are millions of ways to take your own life. If you wanted, you can pass all laws you want outlawing it, but there's nothing you can do to someone who successfully, you know, kills himself. And so uh, it's, so the, the the state is very impotent in sort of what it can do, and it, as you know, a libertarian, you may I you would say, well, people have their own choice, and I would say they always have their own choice, and only in the most extreme circumstances would someone not be able to, uh, you know, commit suicide uh, and remove themselves. I mean, you'd hope that they don't, but exactly, uh, yeah. It, so why, why are we involved? Not, right. So suicide is not illegal. What's what's illegal is is helping someone else to take their own life, right? On 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 the quite reasonable assumption of uh, and, and premise of social solidarity with someone who's who's suffering. So so you know I'm not under any illusion that we can prevent any and all suicides, but, right. but certainly we can we can avoid, especially as physicians, um, directly aiming at or intending the death of our of our patient by our interventions. But I think to answer your question, why proponents or advocates are so interested in getting physicians involved, um, I think the reason is is that it lends a certain veneer of respectability and prestige. It kind of sanitizes an inherently ugly reality and makes it more palatable. It, It makes the poison go down easier if you'll excuse yeah the pun, right, right right because it, it, you know if if you say yeah doctors should be allowed to kill their patients or you know pe- people should be allowed to help other people kill themselves you know most people recoil in horror from 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 that blunt clear and quite accurate characterization of, yeah. of what we're talking about here right um 
but if you can cloak it, if you can first of all uh, give it give it the sort of white coat mantle of prestige and respectability, right? P people generally have regard for physicians, right? In, in, in spite of everything, and still these days, maybe not as much respect yeah, as, right. as we once yeah, right. as we once enjoyed, but but in general, it's seen as is a as a, a helping other regarding you know generally kind of noble profession um and if if physicians are doing it it seems to lend some kind of moral credibility to it um and then if we can alter the language in which we describe it we can avoid the word suicide um because people don't like that for obvious reasons uh if we can talk in sort of fuzzy euphemisms like medical aid and dying uh, that again don't really clarify what we're talking about because of course palliative care physicians give people aid in dying all the time that doesn't mean that they kill them it means they accompany them and provide care in their last days so um so so i think it's important for us when we're talking about this issue to be very clear about what's going on to be very clear about the language that we're using um and I was edified by the decision of the World Medical Association. This this happened since I published the uh, the piece, which uh, goes into a lot of kind of discussion about what medical associations are doing in regards to assisted suicide. And, and the World Medical Association, their decision was still pending at the time of publication. But they, they recently came out with a very strong statement maintaining their opposition to assisted suicide. And they also they also refuse to change the language that they use to describe the act saying that assisted suicide is the most accurate language to describe what we're talking about here so yeah. proponents want not only to change laws they want to they want to change the way in which we talk about this they want to change the language because if you change people's language you can you can slip certain things by them uh, and and sort of soothe them to sleep rather than uh, kind of jolting them awake with the cold shower of, you know, exactly what we're doing here. Sure. Yeah. It, it's very similar to, uh, I think it was, maybe it was the Obama administration that said, oh, we're not at war. We're, it's just a kinetic action. We're taking, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. Right. In, in you yeah, know, another country. Go. Right. And so it's yeah. not, and yeah, by, by changing the language, you absolutely change the tenor of the debate and you, and you put people, well, most people, they don't, know what you're talking about and that's the entire that's the whole point right to just make it confusing if you could just br briefly talk about the one thing you mentioned in your piece so i mean we've been talking a lot about physician assisted suicide and suicide in the in society and i think the suicide rates are going up in this country they are yeah we're, we're, we're seeing a we're seeing an epidemic of of suicide since really since 1999 among both men and women in basically every age category, except for those over the age of 75, we've seen a slight drop for the most elderly uh, cohort. Um, but everyone else, we're seeing a, a very alarming rise in suicide rates that's uh, affecting especially women and especially young people. So suicide rates for 10 to 14 year old girls have tripled in the last 15 years. Ugh. And suicide, suicide is now the second leading cause of death among uh, adolescents and young adults, people in their teens and in their 20s, which is just astonishing. It's It, it surpassed motor vehicle accidents in that age group, which is 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 so awful. Yeah. Um, so well, this is a this is a, yeah, this is a serious issue that we're facing as a society. Uh, in, in general, outside of the issue of physician assisted suicide. Right. Well, my wife is a pediatrician. And um, she started a, a, her own show a, f a few months ago uh, called Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom, where my wife and I lost our 14-year-old son in a car accident last summer. Oh, sorry to hear that. That's uh, thank devastating. You. Uh, it's been awful. <laughs> and I can tell you oh. from a um, depression standpoint, I definitely felt like uh, I never had the symptoms of... I remember seeing patients who had anhedonia and these sort of... Yep, know, yep. These, and I never... I experienced them, right? I had all these things. I'm like, wow, sure. I never was suicidal. Um, but I could see why you, we, when you're in depths of sorrow that you, you definitely see the narrowing of sort of just existence. And it's really tough to even 
see the tomorrow, much less, you know, a yeah. year from now. Yeah. Um, and yeah, exactly. I'm much, much happier that, you know, I'm now further down the road and as, as my wife. And so she started the show to help other parents who are with their kids grieving. But one of the, one of the um, guests she had on the show had a daughter who committed suicide. And in her class in a very small town, there were three kids who committed mm-hmm. suicide. And uh, to speaking mm-hmm. to your point where it's sort of, you know, you affect the people around you, they start seeing it as an option. What, uh, how do you reverse that? I mean, what's it, cause as it becomes a phenomenon, there must be a way to add a stigma to it, right? Just like there was with smoking. Yeah. I mean, yeah. how do you, how do you, how do we reverse that and fix that problem? So I think it, it's going to take collective efforts on a lot of different levels. We, we have to bind up the individual wounded and, you know, there has to be the, the crisis intervention and the the follow-up for probably at least a year after the suicide of someone in his school with other individuals who may be at elevated risk. So, you know, the first people, the first thing that people tend to reach for when there's a, another tragic suicide, especially of a young person is more mental health resources. Right. And I'm, I'm all for it. I'm a psychiatrist. I'm all for <laughs> You that. are a mental that health is, resource. <laughs> I am. I'm a mental health resource. And they're, they're you know, so primary care physicians need you know more training in, in because they're on the front lines and there there are not enough psychiatrists to deal with all the mental health issues that we're facing now as a as a society. Um, so yes, yes to that on the individual level, but I think we also have to look as a, as a society at as you said at the ways in which we're portraying suicide. I was very concerned about this show uh, 13 reasons why i wrote a review of it called killer show uh, which is also at, at first things um and basically what i did in that piece is I, I went through those world health organization's cdc criteria that i mentioned earlier about how not to portray suicide in the media and basically showed how th- that television show 13 reasons why which was produced by netflix uh systematically violated those norms <laughs> yeah. across the board. I just went through each one and, and gave examples from the show of, of why it, it perhaps with good intentions wanted to deal with the issue of teen suicide, but the way it went about it was, was completely, I thought, counterproductive. So, and a lot of psychiatrists came out with very, very strong critiques of 13 reasons why. Uh, and there were several studies, including some, some, methodologically pretty rigorous studies. One of them appeared in, in JAMA, basically showing that suicide rates spiked uh, after the show aired. And there were more there were more suicides among teenagers. There were more visits to EDs with suicidal ideation. So the, the show, this show, which was, I think, at least at the time, it was the most popular show on Netflix. Netflix you know, teens were binge watching this uh you know often just alone or with their with their peers without adult supervision and, and guidance and, and as teens are probably, yeah as, exactly you know <laughs> as, they're, as they want to do so they, someone who's not contemplating suicide would probably watch this show and see it as a kind of cautionary tale and, and a tragedy but but someone who is struggling or suffering could watch the show and take an entirely different message away from it and, and when when the when the ceo of, of netflix was challenged on on the, the effect that the show was having uh his answer was uh, distressingly callous you know he, he basically said uh you know if people don't want to watch it they don't have to watch it right 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 and it's making it, it and it's making a lot of money like in the in the same <laughs> in the same quote yeah. i mean it's it was it was it was awful, and so you know I think we need to I think we need to hold um, our the, the gatekeepers of of information and of influence responsible for this sort of thing, uh, and especially with something like this, obviously where there's a lot of money and other interests at stake, um, you know, demanding a kind of accountability and and responsibility. You, you just can't put things out there and then wash your hands clean of the social consequences of, of, of what you're doing. Um, so, uh, I, I think social responsibility and we have to deal with the problem of loneliness. That's probably a topic for a totally different 
different podcast, you know, different show um, for another day, but hand in hand with the, the rise in suicide and the rise of, of what researchers now call deaths of despair, which is suicide, drug overdose and alcohol related deaths. Um, we're, we're seeing a rise in loneliness. People are more and more socially isolated today in the U.S. and many other Western countries than they were uh, 40 or 50 years ago. Uh, the, the retired Surgeon General under Obama declared loneliness to be a public health crisis and you know, made, made the argument that the effects of loneliness on physical and mental health were comparable to the effects of, of smoking uh, yeah. on, on heart disease and this sort of thing. So, so this is very real and we've got, we've got a lot of robust data now on the physical and emotional effects of social isolation and loneliness. And, and obviously that's not a problem that's going to be solved by a pill or a prescription pad or even by more, more mental health resources. That's, that's a problem that all of us are going to have to take some collective responsibility for, for addressing. Yeah. And I, I think, uh, when you hear the plea that there's, you know, all this problem, these problems for mental health, that the solution is always more resources. It probably isn't. It probably has many, in many ways it is a society thing. It is, uh, talking to your neighbor. It is building communities right. within, uh, stronger That's exactly right. community structures with you through your church, through your school, through your work, exactly. whatever, whatever it might be. Right. I mean, because as, as much as we, it, it's easier now than ever to socially interact with people, to meet people with similar interests and to, uh, with social media, as much as it's been, you know, um, denigrated, I think in some ways it's fantastic and sort of the ability to, to sure. form new relationships with people. And it's, and it, I don't, I think it's easy to sort of cast aspersions at it when it's probably not warranted. It's not fair. Um, but you know, like you said, well, it's, it's a multifactorial thing, right? Yeah. You know, it, yeah, it's, it's I, certainly, I mean, social media brings people that are at great distances, very close together. I mean, someone who's halfway around the world, someone who's on the other end of the country, we, we can stay in touch so much more easily and, and, and consistently than we ever could before. But there's this kind of paradoxical effect that, you know, people that are, you know, down the hall from me or next door to me, it, it may it, it may actually push me away from them. Right. They might I as well be on the other side of the world. <laughs> they might exactly, exactly. So, so it's 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 how we use it. It's how we interact with it. It's the effect that it has in the home and on the family if people are are not kind of vigilant about the the place that it has in their lives. And I think that's especially hard for. For, for young people um, that don't have some some help and some some guidance in this area, you know, if we just if we just give them the smartphone and let them have at it, uh, you know, they can be up till two three in the morning on social media every night um, and, and interacting in ways that uh, that are not always helpful for them. Yeah, well, that's what that's what young people do. They do things that are they lack wisdom. <laughs> And that's what we have to supposed to provide them as much as best we can. Well, I, I really appreciate the discussion. It's fascinating. Um, you know, I was, I'm looking at our interactions in the Met Michigan uh, State Medical Society. This is something that I know people are talking about. I don't think that's any movement to legalize or try and move that in the state of Michigan. But I think, you know, these things it certainly I feel like it started in Michigan. It didn't end up happening with yeah. Kevorkian, but um, that certainly he started the discussion uh, in a nationwide stat. Um, how do people find out more of your writing? Uh, is there, is there a place for you sort of warehouse at all on your website maybe, or? Yeah. Social... So there's, uh, Aaron Cariotti.com is my website. It's spelled K H E R. Um, so you can find some stuff there. I haven't posted all my stuff there. I'm a little backlogged on things, but there's, there are a few resources there, uh, including I think links to most of the articles that I, I mentioned on the on the show. I don't think I have the New Atlantis piece up there yet, um, but they can they can go to uh, AaronCariotti.com if they're interested in more on this issue or uh, uh, more on other things that I've written about or spoken about. Are you on Twitter or LinkedIn? I am on Twitter as well at okay. a So okay. Well, the, those and all the other um, links to the articles we talked about today and. Um, 
a couple other the ethical ones I shows I've had too, which relate to the brain death and organ harvesting will be available on the show notes. Well, Dr. Harity, thank you so much. I appreciate it. And um, I hope we have a chance to talk in about something else. Likewise, I would enjoy that. Thanks. Uh, this has been fun. Oh, great. Thank it. you so much. Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what The Doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash theparadox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com.